You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've talked a bit about the pirates that harassed the Atlantic coast of North America up until now, going all the way back to old Dixie Bull, who harassed New England back in the 1630s. Piracy along the Atlantic coast was kind of a never-ending, low-grade threat. And that's the way it was for most of the world, really, but America especially. I think, in part, it's got to do with all of the wilderness. Say you're England, right? And you're out there building an empire. If you're colonizing India, or later on someplace like China, you've got to do it with fleets of ships and tons of soldiers. I mean, there are a lot of people there, and they have guns. But when you're colonizing a place like America, you can take a more or less hands-off approach. And, you know, it's not like America was empty. There were lots of Native Americans around, but let's be honest, there weren't that many. And maybe my mind is on this because I just finished reading The Stand by Stephen King for the first time since I was, I don't know, 12 years old, probably. And it struck me that The Stand was a very American book. Like, America is what it's about. 
If you haven't read it, it's about a deadly global pandemic, but you never see anything in the book that happens outside the United States. And when the good guys get together in the Boulder Free Zone, what's the first thing they do, the very first thing? They sing the Star-Spangled Banner. Then they ratify the Constitution and establish a little old-fashioned town hall direct democracy. It's filled with this kind of stuff. It's about America. And how does the stand begin? Well, with a horrific plague that wipes out a huge percentage of the population. I'm not sure that's the intent that King was going for, but that's my read on it. And you know, it's not like there were no Indians on the Atlantic coast in 1700. There were. But their population was nowhere near what it had been a century before, or, you know, a century before that. There was a lot of just open wilderness on the Atlantic coast into which pirate ships could slip. A lot of little hidey holes from which they could pounce. So there were always threats out there, waiting to capture a few tons of tobacco here, a few tons of cod there. But most of these were small-time operations, and most of them were foreign. In the case of the English colonies, it was mostly threats from French pirates. But really, they were only pirates because there was not currently a war on. Most of them were mostly good, honest, patriotic men and women who just happened to be operating outside the law because of the current state of geopolitics. As soon as the war starts back up, and it would, they would be welcomed into the bosom of France as law-abiding privateers. And you know, that goes both ways. There were plenty of English sailors out there doing the exact same thing. And of course, the pirates of La Pa, led by Captain Louis Guitar, were no different in that respect. Most of them were French, some of them were Dutch, and they had some Englishmen that had been conscripted. But what they were not, at their core, were good, honest, patriotic men who were just waiting to be welcomed back into the bosom of France. I see something happening here, and no one at the time seems to have noticed it quite yet. But it seems to me that the pirates of La Pa are a harbinger for what is to come. Something about the pirates had changed forever. This is episode 324, Prodigies of Wickedness. It was about two in the afternoon of 29 April 1700. The pirate ship La Pa lay on her side, beached, unmoving. There was that crowd of people sitting on the shoreline watching the battle, and they were exultant at this. Now, they weren't sure if the pirates had yet surrendered, and as it happened, they hadn't, not quite yet. But it was clear that surrender was coming, right? I mean, they couldn't do any more fighting. A man named Nathaniel McClanahan was among the onlookers there and he was maybe the first to spot the four men who jumped overboard from La Pa and began their swim to shore. One by one, these men dropped beneath the waves. They couldn't hack it. It was still a fairly substantial swim to make it to land. Only one of those four managed to do so. Nathaniel McClanahan would say, later on in his testimony, quote, I took him up and asked if he could speak English. The sailor replied that he could. So McClanahan said, What country man are you? The sailor told him, New York. McClanahan then asked the real question. 
Are you one of the pirates? And the sailor said, No, I was a prisoner, forced. Why have you come ashore? McClanahan asked. For a boat. In his testimony, McClanahan said he noticed the man's fingers were burned and swollen. He said, quote, I took him for a rogue and believed he had fought, but he excused himself and said he was forced to hand powder. End quote. It became pretty quickly pretty clear, though, that the people on shore had taken this man for a pirate, and they planned to arrest him. But suddenly, this swimmer yelled, quote, Make haste from the shore! The pirates designed to blow up their ship! And everybody listened. They began to run. Some of them toward town, some just into the nearby woods where they might have some protection. This man who had swum ashore also ran, but in a different direction, and this made McClanahan suspicious. So he chased after the man, tackled him, and arrested him. He didn't know it yet, but Nathaniel McClanahan had just caught John Hewling. It was at this point that the pirates on board La Pa lowered their bloody flag and surrendered, and that's important. The timing here is important. John Hewling had already been captured away from the ship, so he wasn't on board when the pirates formally surrendered. This made him distinct from the men who were currently on board. And of course, Hewling wasn't the only pirate who wasn't there. Last time I mentioned that there were a few pirates who didn't make it over to La Pa. And I wasn't specific about it, but there were two men, Cornelius Frank and Francois Delany. Those two men had been sleeping off their night of excess in the first mate's cabin on board the Nicholson. All of which means that those three men were not included in the governor's acceptance of surrender. Captain William Passenger took over 100 pirates from La Pa into custody, including Captain Louis Guitar, but those three men were not taken into the custody of the Royal Navy. While most of the pirates would be shipped back to England to face trial, those three were going to face the judgment of a Virginia court. Which is fairly significant. I mean, the threat of piracy still loomed over the Chesapeake region. Remember that La Pa was only the flagship of a small fleet of other pirate ships, but those pirate ships had not taken part in the battle. The day after La Pa had been defeated, the 30th of April, the pink Baltimore captured yet another vessel. That was a small merchantman called the Wheeler, she was just emerging from the York River when she was happened upon by the Baltimore. She was boarded by about 50 pirates and relieved of a cargo of brandy. This was a problem. I mean, they were still out there causing trouble. But the character of the men on board Baltimore seems to be a little bit nicer than the other pirates. You know, they didn't beat any of the prisoners. They didn't dump any of the cargo overboard just for kicks. They didn't drink all of the brandy and spend all night dancing. No, they just took their cargo, shook hands, and sailed away in peace. Which was better, but still piracy. And that created kind of a cloud. You know, a very hostile environment toward all of the pirates who had already been captured. Their friends were still out there getting up to all kinds of mischief. The locals began to make some pretty violent noises. They decided to double the guard on the prison just to avoid a mass lynching, which did seem to be possible. 
Moreover, the government decided to hold a trial and do it quickly, but they were going to do it properly. On 13 May, Governor Nicholson appointed Edward Hill to serve as the judge in the trial. The sheriff of Elizabeth City County, which is the name of this whole region, a man named Walter Bayliss, impaneled a grand jury and a petite jury. He appointed 14 men to serve as commissioners, and on the following day, 14th May 1700, a court of the Admiralty of Virginia was convened. The three prisoners were brought into the courtroom, which was in a barn, but still official nonetheless. They stood before the bar when the judge, Judge Hill, said in his opening statement, quote, We have great reason to praise God, thereby being delivered from many miseries, degradations, robberies, and perhaps barbarous murders. He goes on, Pirates being a sort of men whose robberies are generally accompanied with the greatest and most horrid cruelties and tortures to the persons of whose hard fate it is to fall into their hands, and very frequently with the most execrable murder of their captives in cold blood. End quote. Then the commissioners handed down the indictments, and they were fairly specific. John Hewling was indicted, quote, for a piracy and robbery committed upon the ship Pennsylvania Merchant. End quote. Francois de Lany and his fellow, Cornelius Frank, were indicted for their piracy against the Nicholson. Now, they had all taken part in more than this, but that's what they were indicted for. It was the grand jury's job to hand down approval of these indictments, but they ran into a bit of a roadblock here. The grand jurors learned that none of the witnesses who would testify against these men could recognize them by name. They didn't know their names, they just, you know, seen them. When the grand jurors were asking them questions, they couldn't answer them to the grand jury's satisfaction. Eventually, they got around this by, you know, pointing to a man and saying, did that guy do this, and it matched up, did that guy do that, and it matched up. So, after several hours, they finally got around to approving those indictments, but it did take up a fair amount of time. As they had been indicted on separate piracies, they would be tried one after another. John Hewling came first. Quote, not having the fear of God before thine eyes, but being moved and seduced by ye instigation of the devil, John Hewling piratically and feloniously, in a hostile and warlike manner with force of arms of great cunning, small arms, cutlasses, and other weapons of war, end quote, committed piracy upon the high seas in his majesty's colony of Virginia. It was for that he would stand trial. John Hewling was called to make a plea, and he told the court not guilty. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions. 
a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The petite jury of what they called, quote, 12 men good and true was called in. They were each sworn in on a Bible, and John Hewling was given the opportunity to challenge their appointment. He declined. There's not a lot we need to talk about concerning the testimonies given by the witnesses against John Hewling. Everything they had to say is something we've already talked about. You know, most of our information comes from these testimonies. What's interesting here, though, comes from Hewling's cross-examination of the witnesses. He didn't have a lawyer, they didn't appoint a lawyer for you in those days, but he did pretty well on his own. He asked the first witness, Edmund Ashfield, quote, Did you see me plunder anybody? Ashfield replied, No, but I saw you in arms. The second witness, a man named Sam Harrison, told the court all about the events on Pennsylvania Merchant. And he said, indicating Hewling here, quote, I saw this man in the great cabin by a fire, stooping down to the fire with a chip in his hand which he threw upon it. And there was none other by it, nor no fire, but in the cabin. End quote. When Hewling cross-examined Harrison, he asked if Harrison had seen Hewling light the fire, personally, with his own eyes. And Harrison stayed silent. A couple of more men came in and told their stories, indicating that yes, John Hewling had taken part in the piracy. Those men were dismissed, and then it came time for Hewling to speak his piece. He had one main defense here, and it wasn't bad either. He said that he had been forced into the crew, and this was a defense given by virtually everybody in his situation. However, what made Hewling different was he was able to produce that ticket, that note, which carried a declaration from his old Captain Isaacs that said John Hewling was an unwilling participant, taken against his will, right? And Judge Hill, you know, the man in charge, responded to this, and we should remember that in 1700 judges were not, nor were they intended to be impartial. Judge Hill said, quote, It might be that you was not willing at the first, but afterwards might. End quote. Hewling said, I would have gone back to my family, but the captain of the pirate would not suffer me. He took his cane and struck me. He took his sword and drubbed me. The judge said, I perceive you agreed with him afterwards. And then John Hewling was accused of having murdered in the service of the pirate captain Guitar. John Hewling said, quote, I shot no man. God is my witness, and the will of God be done. End quote. What they're talking about here is that moment when the carpenter from the ship they were attacking came over. 
And Captain Guitar said, was anyone killed? And the man said, yes, the master. And John Euling said, well, where was he standing? The guy said he was standing by the mizzen shroud, but Euling responded, no, he was standing by the mizzen mast, and I'm the one who shot him. They brought that carpenter in to tell that story here. The story that shows John Hewling bragging about it and then maniacally laughing about it, showing that John Hewling not only did it, but that he enjoyed it. The district attorney, the man prosecuting here, he closed with an address that sealed John Hewling's fate. He said that the pirates of Le Pas were, quote, the worst sorts of pirates, and the prisoner at the bar the worst of them. In his words, they were, quote, prodigies of wickedness, and their villainies exceed belief. He concluded, what God they pray to, I cannot conceive. The jury retired and returned in quick order. The foreman, William Lowry, delivered the verdict. Guilty. After John Hewling was taken out of the court with this guilty verdict hanging over his head, Cornelius Frank and Francois Delany were brought in, and their trials were a bit more cut and dried. Those two men had taken the Nicholson with their fellow pirates. They had had a huge amount of the ship's beer and wine. Cornelius Frank took an active part in the beatings and the tortures that the pirates so enjoyed. One witness, though, suggested that Delany was less enthusiastic about all of those beatings. In fact, when the gunner was brought forward on the Nicholson, when the men drew their cutlasses and lashed him bloody with them, it was Delany who stood back and cried. This elicited a great deal of sympathy for Francois Delany. He was just a sympathetic boy, after all. The attorney general said, it is possible he might not be guilty of so much cruelty as Cornelius Frank, but nevertheless he is guilty of ye same piracy. End quote. And he pointed out specifically that both men took part in tossing the tobacco overboard, which was important. I mean, that's not as bad as torturing somebody and enjoying it, but it spoke to their character, right? These men didn't have the words in 1700 that we might use today to describe these kinds of actions, but they were the kind of men who wanted to watch the world burn, who liked it. So the attorney general's there saying, you know, he might not like beating people, but he's fine with destroying tobacco, which is just as bad. Both of these men said that they had been forced and coerced. But as the attorney general pointed out, quote, they have pleaded force, but they have no evidence to prove it. And he realized that the jury was sympathetic toward Delany. He told them in his closing arguments, quote, to leave mercy in its proper place. After all, Delany was just a pirate. So the jury retired, returned, and delivered their verdicts. Cornelius Frank was found guilty of all charges, especially high seas piracy. Francois Delany was found not guilty. The attorney general exploded. Gentlemen of the jury, he said, and he argued that he was clearly guilty of taking up arms, of engaging in piracy. He argued, rightly in this case, that 
Delany had no evidence that he had been coerced, and he went on and on, reiterating all the arguments that had been made so far, but the verdict had already been passed. He was not guilty of piracy against the Nicholson. But of course, Delany had been engaged in other piracies that day and the day before, and the court had other witnesses up their sleeve. The following day, the trial recommenced, or rather, a new trial started. The proceedings were the same. The grand jury was brought in, new charges were brought up, filed, and a new petite jury was impaneled. Then the Attorney General said, quote, Pirates are the worst part of mankind. There is no offense against God or man, but what in the course of their lives they become guilty. I hope you will consider that if such men escape justice, it will encourage not only them to continue in their wicked practices, but others to join with them. End quote. And more witnesses were brought in and said that yes, he had taken part in piracy. That happened. And then De Lani, attempting to elicit more sympathy here, pointed out, when cross-examining a witness, that he had given that witness, on board, a pair of shoes, and he did so against the wishes of his shipmates. He pointed out that the other pirates had threatened him with harm, they said they would beat him, but that he gave that man his own shoes off his own feet. It was an act of mercy. And the witness agreed that Yes, he had done that, and he even went on to say that, yes, you did give me a blanket, but he said, quote, this was a piece of humanity only. And all of the other witnesses, when prompted, agreed that Delany was indeed, in some respects, a decent man. At least he showed a bit of humanity when it was called for. But all of them went on to point out that Delany had been there when the plunder was doled out that he had accepted his share willingly, and one man even said that Delany was seen dancing in celebration when they had that big party. At one point, Delany asked the witness if he had seen a certain exchange that took place. His fellow pirates came up to Delany while they were on board after a fight and accosted him for, quote, not shooting well. Delany claimed that that wasn't an accident. He said he didn't want to kill anybody, so he shot poorly. Judge Hill interjected here. He said, quote, Pirates will say anything to save their lives. And the jury agreed. He did elicit some sympathy, but not enough. When they retired and returned, Delany was found guilty. On 24th May, just a few days later, John Hewling was taken to the place he first landed in Virginia, that spot where all those spectators had watched the battle, where Nathaniel McClanahan had chased him down and arrested him. When he got there, he found that a cedar gibbet had been erected on the shore. The executioner put him on a stool, laid a noose around his neck, and kicked the stool out from under him. John Hewling jigged and danced until he was still. The executioner went a step further, and this was on orders down from the governor. They affixed an iron chain from the gibbet to his body to ensure that, even if the rope broke, 
he would remain there, hanging for many long months. They wanted him to hang there until nothing was left but bones. As a warning to anyone who might consider piracy on the Chesapeake. A few miles down the coast at a point called Princess Anne, two gibbets had been erected. Cornelius Frank and Francois Delany were led there, and they too were hung by the neck until dead, dead, dead. But what about all the other pirates? You know, there were over a hundred men in jail, or rather, you know, locked up in a barn, who had taken part in the piracy. Well, Governor Nicholson had not been present at the trials. He hadn't even attended either of the executions, because Governor Nicholson was busy. His job, in conjunction with Captain William Passenger, was questioning Luigi Tar and all of those other pirates before they were sent on to England. Next time, the trial of Luigi Tar and the pirates of La Paz. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight